everyone, I'm Troy Dodds and welcome to the On The Record podcast presented by The Western Weekender. On this podcast, I'm joined by special guests who all have such great stories to tell about Penrith and the role they've played in our city. They are Penrith stories told by Penrith people. Today, my special guest is Terry Galloway. Terry has worked as a journalist since 1955 and has covered some of the biggest news stories in Australia's history across television, radio and print. Recently, he was honoured with an OAM for his services to broadcast news media. Terry lives in Colleton these days and has been kind enough to join us for a look at his remarkable career. I hope you enjoy our chat. Terry, thanks for joining us. Good to be with you, Troy, and uh, uh, welcome to everyone who's listening in. First question we always ask, where were you born and where did you grow up? I'm a Queenslander, born at Wynnum and Brisbane's Bayside suburbs in 1939, December 1939. And what uh, was growing up in the, the 1940s like in, uh, in Wynnum? <laughs> well, mate, I uh, have vivid memories of World War Two, believe it or not. Just to uh, put you in the picture here, my mother died in 1943. Right, okay. Uh, when I was uh, approaching four years of age. My father was away... Uh, as a coast watcher uh, with the Australian Army and my grandfather was away doing some sort of secret business with the then PMG in the security line and my uncle Jack, the other male member of the family, was serving in HMAS Manura. We went to live with my grandmother at Cannon Hill, 67 Muir Street, Cannon Hill and uh, for the stayed there until my uh, teen years, uh, okay. sometime down the track, along with um, my auntie Doreen and her daughter Joan, who was just a little bit older than me, nine months older than me. Um, I've got to say the memories of World War Two are still very distinct in my mind, despite the fact that I was four years of age, that I was there four, five and uh, six years, seven, up until the age of uh, 14, actually. But I remember uh, very vividly the slit, slit trench in the backyard of air raid sirens at night time, of searchlights overhead and aircraft flying overhead, caught oh, the yeah. searchlights. That was uh, Brisbane in World War Two. Uh, a crazy time and, and obviously difficult losing your mum so so young as well. Do you have memories of her or, or too young? Oh, no, I, I do have vivid memories. We lived in a flat at, at Wynnum. Mm. Uh, a half a house at Wynnum, and I have this vivid memories of the stove, a blue cooker, gas stove, and my mother and um, sunshine streaming in through the windows. That's what I remember about my mother. Um, hey, Troy, the other interesting thing that I have vivid memories of of World War Two was the segregation of the American troops. The uh, black Americans were not allowed north of the Brisbane River. Right. On one particular occasion, and this is a bit gruesome, I must say, on one particular occasion, it must have been 1945 or thereabouts, uh, my grandmother, Nana, my brother, Brian, and me were at North Quay bus station waiting for the, the bus to go home to Cannon Hill. Down the street was running this large black American soldier chased by two white American uh, military police who opened fire and shot wow. him just Jeez. as it got to us. He was trying to make the Victoria Bridge to get back to the south side. That was um, my first, my first uh, brush with segregation at its worst. Remarkable that, you know, when you look back on it, that it's happened even in our lifetimes, yep, you know. Exactly. but. Um, now tell me about media and where that interest comes from, because I think you, you know, you got involved very, very young. I'm, I'm intrigued to know where that started. Did you have family in the media? Where, where did it come from? Because it seems like there's been no other career option for you. My father came back from the war uh, in 1947 after serving with Beekoff in Japan. Immediately took off to Canton Island in the Pacific, working for Pan American Airways. Then went to Fiji uh, to work for a very rich man who owned a gold mine and an island, a copper plantation. He came back to Australia in, I think it was 1951, and brought with him a, a new uh, love interest. Okay. They married in uh, 1953, and then in 1954, at the age of 14, we moved to Townsville. Dad took up a job up there. I went to school at Our Ladies Mount, the Christian Brothers College in Townsville. 
wasn't particularly a particularly good student. <laughs> <laughs> Plenty of journos will say that. Yeah. I, think. <laughs> I was very lucky, brother Skian, uh, and I hit it off because he loved the English language, and apparently I had a bit of a a love of it also because I would get ninety nine to one hundred percent in my English exams. In October 1955, much to my dad's disappointment, I left school and applied for a job as an apprentice hand and machine compositor at the Townsville Daily Bulletin, which, which I got and went in there. Uh, that's the old linotype operator's job. Uh, hot metal, the smell of it, it's still, it's still yeah. there with me, you know. Um, obviously, I didn't do much writing. <laughs> I, uh, Anyway, I achieved my, achieved my, I got my trade certificate and worked in that trade, uh, but started writing freelance, if you might mm-hmm. like to say, from about 16, 17 on, and then moved back to Brisbane. My first, um, uh, my first uh, job working for Rupert Murdoch was in 1964 at the Sunday Truth. And uh, started there as a linotype operator, but progressed into writing for uh, Queensland Country Life uh, and the Cumberland newspapers up there uh, that uh, Rupert had. Moved to uh, Canberra once again as a linotype operator, uh, doing piecework. When the average wage for a linotype operator was about $80 a week, I could earn 160 a week as yeah, a linotype. Okay. And uh, once again, started freelancing. I worked. I wrote articles for the Canberra Times, the Canberra News, which was an afternoon daily. They started the Canberra Courier, which is a weekly free, as well as Two Wheels Magazine, the motorcycle magazine. They were my, that was a source of income for me uh, in Canberra. And this is a time where, where print rules in yep. terms of uh, yeah. no matter which area you're going to, there's either multiple newspapers, newspapers are yeah. massive. What were newsrooms like in that in that era, that 1960s era? Because you've been around newsrooms even to today, you know how much they've changed. Yeah. But what were, what were they like in the 1960s? Oh, they were frantic sometimes, and uh, very very well represented in some of the old movies. You know, we had copy boys. My first job actually, yeah. the town of a bully, included being a copy boy, where you went around grabbing uh, slips of paper from the reporter's desk, taking them over to the subs table, and um, uh, Jim Gibbards was the first editor there, and to my eyes, he was a huge man, a big buff, and a very mm. scary man indeed. <laughs> um, yeah, the other, um, as I said, I went to work for Rupert in 1964 on Sunday Truth in, in Brisbane. I had a very close encounter, which is a little bit strange with uh, Rupert. Right, okay. Yeah, we... Uh, we used to indulge in a bit of uh, drinking during working hours yeah, yeah. <laughs> to the extent that we'd get, get a uh, milkshake container full of milk, yeah. put in a few tots of Bundaberg rum <laughs> and drink it through a straw. Anyway, very late on the Saturday night, about 11, 11.30, just at the end of the night, um, these four scruffy-looking people came in uh, wearing oilskins. It was raining, pouring down rain. Behind them was the security guard, an ex-policeman, waving his finger and saying, don't, don't do anything, don't do anything. And Mr Murdoch, this is the night editor, it was Rupert bringing his yacht crew in. They'd sailed up from uh, Sydney for the Brisbane to Gladstone Yacht Race and uh, they came in. Rupert's after dinner, they said, oh, come on, have a look at my newspaper, which they did. That was my first up close and personal encounter with Rupert, with the... As I said, the rum milkshake. What about stories that you remember from that era, that that sort of nineteen sixties era? I guess it's this is kind of the time when Australia, I guess, is is growing up. Um, you know, mm. post World War Two, and the, the baby boomers are are coming into the fore. Um, what 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 were the big stories around that um, that era? And Australia at that point still a pretty small place, really, on the on the world scale. It was Brisbane City Council, of course, uh, being uh, the biggest. Still, the biggest metropolitan area in the world, I think, covered by Brisbane City Council, it was a constant source of stories. But the old rule: council, courts, cops, yeah. uh, rule. And we had a, a brilliant, a uh, couple of brilliant police reporters who got and crime and court reporters. Um, I think the biggest story I ever 
worked very, very hard on, you know, was for Queensland Country Life. Yeah, the introduction of uh, AI, it took me weeks, actually, to sort it out. It was a big feature story. That was one I was very proud of. I broke a couple of stories also in relation to show jumping. Yep. And uh, one in particular of how uh, some of the horses were surgically mutilated by cutting their pastern, the nerves in their pastern, so when they hit the rails, they wouldn't shy. Uh, that was a, a mm. pretty big story. That actually brought some reform to the, to the show jumping industry. It's interesting that because these days breaking a story lasts all of about five or ten minutes yeah. because obviously the news cycle yeah. is is not only watching each other but the advent of the internet and whatever else you know if you've broken mm. a story it's I'm guessing back then breaking a story was was almost much such a bigger deal because it it lived for the for at least twenty four hours before anyone else was <laughs> was was on the story. That's exactly right, and then got followed up with uh, in the state parliaments mm. and got followed up all around. Um, I know this is all it's all very interesting to me and perhaps to you, Troy, but I, I guess from people listening in, it is simply uh, a reminiscence of an old bloke talking about <laughs> the old the old days. And I should say uh, about when I first came to Sydney, I went to Canberra and then had a marriage breakup and uh, came to Sydney. I got a job with the Cam- Campbelltown Ingleburn News uh, once they're doing court reporting, council and court reporting mm-hmm. down there. Uh, from there, I went to the Shire Pictorial uh, newspaper at, uh, in uh, Scomo's electorate yep. <laughs> at the office of Carring Bar down in the Shire. Uh, from there, I actually started a paper in Hurstville, the uh, St. Jo- uh, St. George Pictorial, okay. which is quite an interesting uh, exercise to, as a startup. Yeah, it's a startup, yeah. Um, unfortunately, the election of the Labor government, the Whitlam government in 1972, really cost that, that company that I was working for uh, its newspapers because revenue just fell away. Mm. Uh, I left there and I went to work in the Northern Beaches area, Dawson newspapers, once again on suburban newspapers. Loved it. And one of, the, uh, one of my claims to fame is that uh, I was a f- had the first interview with John Howard on the morning after his pre-selection for Benelong. And then in 2007 at Sky News, I was part of the team that interviewed him, his last interview Mm. uh, as Prime Minister. And they were there for for John's uh, entire career, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. And um, that was with Susie Lattimore, the presenter at uh, Carlingford Public School. And the next, uh, anything heard from uh, Mr. Howard, that day was on election day was mm. when he conceded defeat. Now, Terry, Western Sydney uh, becomes a big part of your life in 1975. Now, no, 1975, I came out here to uh, Penrith, worked in uh, yep. District Star newspapers. So is that when Penrith first entered your life, 1975? That's the first world at the time that Penrith comes into yep. into the world yep, for you? basically. What yeah. was Penrith like in 1975? Oh, Penrith was... Uh, <laughs> Very much a country town. And in fact, the District Star newspaper, mm. it was in St. Mary's. And a lot of businesses were in St. Mary's because that was the borderline for local telephone calls. Penrith yes. was 047. Yep. It was a trunk call and very expensive in, in those days. But Penrith was, uh, it was fairly vibrant. The council meetings were something to behold. Uh, I had a funny experience also when uh, starting at the District Star. I inherited uh, the former editor's uh, contact book. Yep. And there was Penrith Mayor. So I phoned up and I said, oh, Mrs. Kamak. And this lady's voice at the other end said, um, who are you after? I said, oh, Terry Galloway, District Star Newspapers. Ah, um, Brian, it was Brian King's wife. <laughs> Brian was actually the mayor then, with the, and it was his number that was in the book. Yeah. And they, uh, Brian King and Eileen Kamak were you know, really arch rivals, <laughs> <laughs> one against the other. But, uh, yeah, that's when I first came out, 1974. As a matter of fact, uh, Kevin Crammery, who was currently mm. on Penrith Council, yep. uh, came into the council I think in that year or around about that yeah. that era, and then uh, 1979, Rick Page, 2KA, said, 
you want to be my news director? And that was my first move into radio. Kevin, by the way, has been a, uh, a guest on this podcast. Oh, so cool. anyone who wants to uh, go back, uh, search the other uh, Kevin Cramery episode of On the Record. Mm. You mentioned 2KA. So radio in Penrith at that time, uh, 2KA, later 1FM, but, but 2KA is, is, is a force to be reckoned with. Uh, mm. becomes a big sporting force to be reckoned with as far as calling Panthers games in an era before we had radio and TV doing everything. That's exactly right. Um, so you, you become the news director. Uh, so what, what was 2KA like in those in that in that period of time? Well, it was unique in radio history because it was uh, 2KA, 780 in the mountains, 1480 in Sydney's west, mm. had two transmitters. Um, and you want to remember that it was 2KA Katoomba and the... Rate notices given to people in Katoomba said, in times of bushfire, put your radio on 2KA. Um, Greg Granger came in as the uh, manager of it, and he introduced uh, Blacktown, uh, Blacktown to Blackheath, 2KA. And it was pretty pretty good times. Ian Maurice, you may remember him from yes, uh, yep. Panther days and television days. Ian was doing 9 to 12 on uh, 2KA. Uh, John O'Callaghan, the son of Gary O'Callaghan, mm-hmm. uh, was doing evenings, and it was fairly hot stuff. And we got a, a, a really big increase in audience. We were the local uh, news station. We uh, people just say if they heard of anything, accidents, anything. Uh, Quick, under 2KA, they will have it. What kind of resources were you given as, as news director? I mean, was it was it the kind of era where it was, yeah, here's, here's plenty for you, or was it all run on a, on a pretty tight... Uh... <laughs> pretty tight. Actually, uh, that, that's quite funny because uh, I, I was... Rick Page... <laughs> the weekly management meetings at the District Side newspaper after issue day yeah. were something to behold. <laughs> And I had the reputation of being the first one to charge out and slam the door, <laughs> followed by the photographer, followed by... The... Anyway, one of the, it happened to be one Thursday after this meeting and the phone rang. I went, ah! Oh, it's Rick, do you want to come and have lunch at the band club? So we got there with my soon-to-be wife, Coral. And Rick said, how much, how much will it cost me to have you come and work for me? And I said, $22,000 plus a car. <laughs> That was the going, <laughs> the going, our big wage, you know. Yeah, so. yeah. And uh, Rick said, oh, okay. And my, my Coral looked at me and said, what? <laughs> no discussion. <laughs> anyway, uh, he, uh, Rick sent the message out to say that I was coming to 2KA and the other two journalists left immediately. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know, that, that tends to happen, though, when, uh, when new editors or bosses arrive, and it tends to be the best thing that can happen because it allows you, um, and I guess I experienced this when I first joined the, the Weekender as editor, it allows you, you don't really feel like it's your team no. until everyone there you hired, essentially, yeah. you know. And uh, anyway, we, uh, as I said, Greg Ranger, the day I started there, to you, we bought the place. And I started with Greg Granger as manager and Rick Page was uh, on his way out. Um, and we finished up. Fred, uh, Greg brought Fred Van Dyke up from uh, Melbourne. Magnificent radio voice, Fred. He's still around. Um, and Rod Earl. Rod Earl's another. His son is a soccer coach here in Penrith oh, to this okay. day. Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, Rod Earl came down from Mackay in Queensland and they they were the two journos and I, I did the morning shift. Um, uh, then Fred did the morning shift, I did the midday and, and uh, Rod at night time. Now, how did you leave 2KA and, and where did you go from there? Um, <laughs> Vincent Smith was the manager of 2GB and had heard, because I used to feed stories for 2UE, mm-hmm. uh, stories from the West which I've got to say nobody else was getting because nobody else was really concentrating yeah. on this. Um, and uh, Vincent Smith was news director at 2GB. Vincent phoned, phoned me up one day and said, come and have a talk. Uh, we had a discussion. He, um, he said, well, how'd you like to do state, uh, state parliament and Sussex Street for 2GB? And I said, sounds good to me, Vincent. He said, how does a B ground, <laughs> big rates happen? <laughs> And being a bit arrogant, I stood up and I said, Vincent, you've wasted your time and mine. Turned around, opened the door to walk out and walked straight into his closet. 
<laughs> was the, the wrong door. And uh, Gee, that's, that's from a movie, that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, went downstairs, got to the public phone, phoned um, my colleague at TUE, and I said, oh, I was cranky about it. You know, cause I, mm. uh, anyway. He said, Mark said, don't sign anything, don't sign anything, come on over and talk to me. So we jumped on the train, went across the bridge and uh, signed up at 2UE and then got to do the Night Watch program. That was... Yeah, now Night Watch is a, is a big part of, of radio history in that, in that time period. Tell us about that for those who don't know what it is. Well, Night Watch went to where at five past nine on a Sunday morning. Uh, the involvement in it, uh, from, my, from my point of view and my wife's point of view, were that... that uh, Coral would be in the studio listening to police fire ambulance scanners. I'd be out on the track chasing ambulances, chasing fires, chasing stories all over the place, which we'd cut up uh, and get all the grabs put together and go to where, at, as I said, five past nine. It was rating 36s. It was one of the highest rating pro- uh, programs on Sydney radio. Uh, it was great fun, but it took me back to my childhood mm. where I was allowed to sit up on a Thursday night and listen to Nightbeat. I'm Randy Stone. I covered the Nightbeat for the Daily. <laughs> and uh, that that was uh, my intro- introduction, you know, way back then, a Grace Gibson radio production. But, uh, and I must say that at times during the, during the broadcast of, uh, on uh, Nightwatch, I would use that line, stories start in many different ways as one began. And... Uh, it was great fun. Did that for 12 months and then got headhunted again from, or actually, yeah, headhunted from, uh, uh, went to 2GB as a designated police and crime reporter. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where I got into, well, a lot of, um, a lot of stories. Like, you know, to, to you where I covered the Granville train crash yeah, and okay. stuff. But, In fact, to you where that audio still comes out every year of the initial uh, yep. reports of um, of that because that is some of the most probably you know in the top couple of most iconic sort of broadcasts in Australian history. Paul Macon, I think, mm. um, was the yeah. the first kind of audio that came through. Um, so, radio in those days is is very much the voice of of the city. Yeah, it was, and uh, just from a personal point of view, my two sons were held up there at Penrith Railway Station. They got on the train two behind the one that wow, yeah. they prang. And Ron Mulock, who was the local MP, his mm-hmm. son Mark, who's the solicitor yeah, of the Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Mark was in the front carriage. And then Ron was pretty upset because he couldn't find Mark. He heard the initial crash. What had happened was Mark was in the front carriage and he simply walked away and went, went to university. Mm. Um yeah, so that was TUE and then 2GB, you know, uh, Father's Day 1984, the Milpera Massacre. Mm-hmm. Um, we, uh, I, I, we, we were actually up at uh, the entrance with Coral's grandf- uh, grandfather and for some reason I declined to have a beer all day. Yeah. And we were leaving the girls up there to stay with their grandmother and uh, we drove back, got to Gosford uh, Railway Crossing <clears throat> and uh, Zorba was calling the football. We yeah. listening to, oh, turned over to get the score. Yeah. Uh, the, the sudden, suddenly there was a news flash, and news director Charlie Cox came on air and said seven people have been sh- uh, shot and killed in Bilpera. I've got to say, I broke a few speed records. <laughs> that was before the M1, and Father's Day, Pennant Hill Road was just chockers. And I now admit to doing 140 k's down the wrong side of the road. <laughs> Plenty of journos have got uh, no, similar stories to get to stories. 1984, actually, you, you win an award in 1984 for a totally different story, being the, the Spit Bridge, Spit Bridge uh, Siege yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, that was a, obviously a, a big moment for you to win an award from it, but a, a, a troubling story that day. Yeah, my, um, uh, Steve Canellis, a copper mate of mine, uh, got shot right between the eyes by Hucky Atahan. And um, we followed the convoy of police cars right around the city of Sydney, out to the eastern suburbs, up to the northern beaches, with this man with five hostages in the car. It came to a halt on the Spit Bridge when the police had the bridge raised and held to stop the car from going any further. Uh, Steve Canellis 
from a part of the SWAS team that were doing it. He came to the side of the car. Atahan was sitting between the two men. Another uh, three of them, about five hostages, but sitting between two men with a pistol up to the head of the driver, who was a bank manager. Um, and Cadellus um, came to the the door of the car and said, mate, was the effect of give yourself up now. You can't go any further. Out of hand, just reached over, went bang, and shot him through between mm -hmm. the eyes. Um, I was parked up the top, the uh, northern side of the bridge. My car, the 2GB car, was actually being used as a roadblock. This chap came up and said, I'm a doctor. I heard there's been a shooting. Can I help? And I said, mate, you better go down there and talk to the copper. I can't. You know, I'm a civilian. He went down and he saved Canellis' life. Uh, Canellis, when he was shot, fell down across the, uh, the side of his car, the police car, and put his head forward like that. His mates were just in the process of lifting him. He was going to lie him down. This doctor raced down and said, don't leave him, don't touch, don't touch. The doctor turned out to be a veteran of Vietnam, medical vet, veteran of right. Vietnam, well-versed uh, in how to deal with gunshot wounds. Um, Canellis had his head down and all the blood was coming down his front. And the doctor said in evidence at the coroner's court, if they had laid him down, he would have drowned in his own, own blood. Right. Uh, and... <laughs> Mind you, would you believe, four days later, I think it was, less than a week later, Canellis gave a press conference. And what had happened is the, the full metal jacket had hit him in the, uh, straight between the eyes, mm. hit the skull, which was a very strong bone, and the projectile finished up down in his shoulder. Wow. In a remarkable story. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. 1989 is another uh, big story as well, and it's it's close to home for you um, with the the murder of Lauren Hickson um, in in our local area, which um, which we have covered at different times for different reasons here at the Weekender. That is a story I know that sticks with you to this day. Mate, it does for a couple of reasons. One, myself, I was at Channel Seven at the time, and. Um, Myself and Scotty Richardson, the cameraman, Scotty lives in the area also, um, were following it around and the, the police, uh, the little girl's clothing had been found in a tree down on the, on the river bank on that sort of pl plain flat area mm. over at Emu Plains. Um, just as we got there, a policeman reached into the water and took hold of this, the little girl's leg and pulled her out. He sobbed. He's saying, "No, don't, don't, don't film it." And he was sobbing. Uh, this little girl. And that uh, that picture, I can see it now. Mm. Um, subsequently, I had some interviews and dealings with uh, Lauren's mother, Jarena, and father Derek. Um, and they they were living in a demountable at uh, at the caravan park. When when the court case finished, I once again, Jarena came out and I was talking to her and Derek and I said, you make sure you apply for victims of crime. Uh, what was that? They didn't know. I said, mm. well, $50,000 is available for the victims of crime, which they subsequently applied for, subsequently allowed them to move out of the demountable and into a house at Glenmore Park. Over the years, uh, Jarena would ring me at home sometime in the middle of the night in the horrors, mm. you might say. So Coral and me would get in the car and go up to Glenmore Park and sit and talk to her and talk to Derek. And uh, and just a couple of weeks ago, Jarena rang me about another matter. So I've kept in touch all the way through. It's remarkable what you mentioned there about you know going to Jarena's house in that a lot of people, I think, and it's probably understandable in some ways have a have a certain perception of journos and mm -hmm. I think part of the perception is that they you know they just they go to stories they move on from it it's done but a lot of those stories stick with you and a lot of those a, a lot of relationships are formed um, and bonds are formed as a result of those stories because uh, particularly I guess you know going back a you know a couple of decades 
the, the media was such an important part in finding out, and it still is, but finding out information and getting getting the justice that's required. And then there's a bit of an empty void after the court case, mm. but you form these bonds with, with people. And uh, just a couple of years later, was another murder of a little girl, seven-year-old Kylie Corbett at Parramatta. Parramatta, my yeah. Cousin. Um, my, uh, Jimmy Council was the detective sergeant in charge of that case. Uh, Angus MacDonald was at the time running the CIB. Uh, Angus called Jimmy up and said, no, no overtime to spend on this. Uh, you know, we're, we're cutting back on expenses. And Jimmy got really, really upset about that. Mm. So he told me. So I got on air and said, you know, police are scaling back the investigation because of mm. any all hell broke loose, as you, you can imagine. Absolutely. But Jimmy said that, said to Angus MacDonald, I don't care what you say. Me and my blokes are working until, until we mm-hmm. uh, this one. Again, I spoke to Barbara, uh, Kylie's mum, after the court case, and again mentioned the fifty thousand that was available to her. That enabled them, that family, to uh, move to Katoomba actually and start a new business up there. Uh, every year, subsequently, no matter where I have been, I get a Christmas card. Yeah, from Barbara Corbett, and down in the corner, in brackets, just Kylie, and that's a one. I, mm. I, it makes me feel good to know that she knows that uh, I went through all that with her. And those, and you do go through it with them, don't mm. you? Because you do. you're there from 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 this initial moment all the way through court cases and and afterwards, and um, the, the stories disappear from the headlines, but they don't yeah. disappear from from the people involved. I've got to say, you know. Um, Part of it, it's not all altruism because I was getting scoop after scoop after scoop mm-hmm. from uh, stories that nobody else was getting by yeah. being part of the family, basically. And, uh, you know, in all honesty, that's why I began the conversations with them in the first place. Absolutely, but that's that's also how the world of journalism, I guess, has changed. In that today, a journalist could today a journalist could could be called a journalist and, and write stories and, and probably never interviewed more than mm. a, more than half a dozen people because the way it's different. In those days, you really did need that nose for a story, didn't you? And that that ability yeah. to 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 get where people didn't want you to get. Yeah. Um, see, the Anita Coffee killing is another mm. one that uh, I became very close, closely uh, involved with. Absolute coincidence. One o'clock in the afternoon, I'm driving up the Great Western Highway in the 2GV car with my son Kelvin in board. Kelvin was doing some uh, panel operating at 2WS and I was going to drop him and go home. We got just approaching Reservoir Road when on the scanner and the car came up. Uh, 27-1, mate, you better get the detectives up here. It looks bad. Reen Road. And I knew where Reen Road was um, because that... uh, Anyway... I literally did a left-hand turn, up a right-hand turn, and was at the scene of the crime. Climbed over the fence and walked down to where Constable Murphy, of all names, mm. was uh, in charge of the crime scene. And he said, mate, don't come in here. You know, it was crime. And Anita lay there. I went uh, back back to the car because Jimmy Council again was going to give me the name of a, a murder victim down at Campbelltown, would you believe, mm. for the 2 o'clock news. I drove home, did that um, that story, uh, identifying this uh, former champion boxer found in the boot of a car, jumped on the, in my news car, went back down to the scene uh, where Anita lay and started reporting uh, from there uh, and followed it through uh, mm. you know, once again to its ultimate conclusion. They are remarkable stories that um, that stay in Sydney's uh, history, and and um, you know difficult stories, but ones that, as you say, for a you know into, they make a career mm. in in many ways. And mate, I've got to say once again on a very personal note, uh, my son Kelvin died at the age of uh, forty five. Um, his brother Sean bought a gravesite at uh, Minchinbury. Mm-hmm. Would you believe it is from here to the end of the corridor? from Anita's memorial. Wow. It's just yeah. how close, you know. Now, as pay TV launches in Australia in, in the mid-1990s, and a couple of years into that, um, Sky News starts to take off. 
and it becomes a big part of your life. In fact, it becomes the next couple of decades. Uh, tell us about how you ended up <laughs> at Sky News. Uh, my, my contract with Channel 7 finished. Um, I got uh, stationed into a little bit of trouble when I interviewed, hired an aircraft, interviewed a killer on an aircraft. Okay. <laughs> As you do. <laughs> As you do. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> They uh, chose not to renew my contract at uh, Channel 7, so I went to work for the Prime Network and uh, subsequently as a news director in Wollongong, Newcastle, Canberra, southern and northern New South Wales. Had a serious domestic with uh, the manager of of southern New South Wales and uh, we piloted company. Um, a mate of mine, Bernie Keenan, was doing some work at Sky News. He said, give, give Angela, Angela Frangopoulos a ring out there, which I did. That was 1997. Mm-hmm. And that's when I started, uh, uh, I actually started on April Fool's Day. <laughs> <laughs> and Sky News, from, from slow beginnings, becomes pretty much the political power play in yeah. a player in, in Australian media and news, and, and still is mm-hmm. today. Uh, what was the rise of it like, though? Because it's being done at a time when, you know, pay TV sure has taken off, but I can't imagine that it was a, a cheap service to uh, to put together. Mate, it was... Uh, you talk about running on a, a small <laughs> smell of an oily rag. Uh, there were two providers. There was Foxtel and uh, Optus. Optus, yeah, yeah. Optus Vision, yeah. Um, luckily enough for Sky, they used to pay for the Sky service on alternate months. Okay. Yeah. So Tony Ritchie... The manager had money to pay the staff. And, yeah. Uh, oh, mate, it was tight. It, yeah. there, was, there was absolutely no money. Um, you would have dealt with some journos that we know today as almost household names in, in the very infancies of their careers. Yeah. Oh, some of uh, Laura Jays. Um, she came, that's way down the track from there. Mm. Uh, but she came to work on our digi desk straight out of uni. Uh, yeah. Very. And I uh, nicknamed her uh, the, uh, the short, shy Sheila from the Shire. <laughs> <laughs> and Laura, Laura, uh, God bless her, she uh, she worked worked her backside off to, to get where she did. She got the opportunity to go to Brisbane as a reporter, took along a milk crate so she could stand on to interview <laughs> people to get the decent eye, eye line, and subsequently went to Canberra. She did actually. She rang me one day. She said, "Oh, Terry, I've I've just been offered a job at Channel Ten. I said, "Oh, sounds pretty good, you know, from pay TV to Channel Ten. What is it? The children's program?" <laughs> <laughs> she said, "But I really don't." I said, oh, "Mate, you stick with what you're doing. You'll get yeah. it. She went to Canberra, and now she is a very successful on-air presenter. You stay at Sky all the way through till till 2021. Is this part of your career? Did it become more about imparting that knowledge onto younger journalists that you'd, you'd, you'd built up from an entire career? Or were you still hungry to, to be breaking stories yourself? Oh, mate, I'm still hungry to get out on the track, you know. Yeah. I'm still annoying people by phoning up and saying, mate, I've got a story for you. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, Sky was very good to me. I did a lot of uh, outside reporting. Bushfires became just bushfire after bushfire. I did all of them. Hmm. Uh, two trips to Timor, the first one in 1999 when the Australian troops went in. And once again, sitting at home, cursing, oh, all the blokes are going up to Timor and I'm not going. Mm-hmm. Phone rings, yeah, it's Tony Ritchie. Terry, B-Sky very London want to know if, if we can send someone up to Timor with, with their crew. And um, don't have, you don't have to answer me now, but you know, talk it over with your wife. And I looked at Coral. And uh, she said, it's Timor, isn't it? And I said, yeah. And she said, I, I said, can I go? And she said, can I stop you? <laughs> anyway, I went up there twice when when the trouble was on. That was pretty, that, I've got to say, that was, uh, oh, yeah, I came back uh, absolutely, a little bit shell-shocked after that first. I had 10 days up there, basically no food, uh, no water, had the militias driving up and down, shooting, shooting up uh, hundreds of rounds into the air. Mm. The day that uh, I lobbed there, a Dutch journalist was killed and his driver blinded uh, by, the, by the militia. Uh, and we, uh, we were in a compound sleep, sleeping on the ground with a cardboard box for a, a pillow and eventually Cosgrove sent a, a detachment of troops down to stand guard over us. 
um, we, uh, cameraman and I, Dave Cooper and I, found a, a murder victim. A bloke had been killed and dragged in. And, uh, it was things like that. It was fairly traumatic. Anyway, that was 1999. Uh, 2006, when all the trouble erupted there again, mm. I went back. Uh, and Ansley sent me back there. Oh, but I first must say about that uh, 1999 trip, yeah. I said it was on a shoestring. Most of uh, what I did was put on Angelo's credit card. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was the only way they uh, could afford to get me up there. As can often happen in yeah. um, in newsrooms. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned your, your wife Coral a few times. Uh, first of all, how did you meet? Um, and and what was that? Uh, was that was it love at first sight, or how did uh, how did that come about? Uh, she came to work at the District Star newspaper, and she was the boss's PA, uh, Carletti's PA. Yep. And as I said, she used to sit outside the uh, desk outside the door of his office, and she was getting used to this this <laughs> weekly time. And I've got to I've got to say, and this sounds uh, uh, the first time I met her, Carl. It was very very busy uh, time of the day. It was. Carl said, "Oh, this is Coral. She's starting work here." And I looked at her, and she's very tiny. I said. You wouldn't make a good feed for a hungry dog. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, she eventually forgave me for, for that and uh, and we married in 1989. Clearly. And uh, how many kids? Uh, two each. Uh, yep. two girl, Coral had two girls. I had two boys. Yep. We okay. have a, a melded, welded family. Yeah, okay. Mm. And it does... You know, when it comes to the, the, the wife of a journo, there, there's a bit of sacrifice in oh. there because it's, it's not your classic, you know, nine-to-five job, nor is it... All that predictable, you know. Um, you mentioned earlier, you know, the uh, the story of the Milpera shooting coming through as you're, you're driving back from the coast and things like that. So I imagine it's, um, you know, it has its, its ups and downs because of that as well. It does take a lot of sacrifice and understanding. It does, and uh, you know, uh, there was a uh, a case of a, a madman going up and down the east coast of Australia, shooting people, shooting at people, and, and committing a couple of murders. I left home at 20 past two in the morning to go into 2GB mm. uh, for an early start for something, whatever it was. Well, it was a four, four o'clock start anyway, but uh, 20 past two, the cab pulled up, went in there. I rang Coral from Mount Gambia that, at midnight that night and said, don't hold, don't hold dinner. <laughs> <laughs> I won't be, in, uh, won't be uh, home for a few days. Um, Timor. Going to mm. Timor, that was fairly traumatic for Coral. Probably mm. worse for me because they were using real bullets up there. Yeah, um, on both occasions. It, the it, number it, of it, times that Coral has sat in the car, and uh, in in times of possible danger as well, mm. I've got to say that uh, <laughs> once again, stupid things you do. Casula church bombing when the bomb went off Sunday morning. I had my Bronco shirt on and a T-shirt. The phone rings. Not two dead, head down there. Jumped in the car. Coral came with me. Uh, went down there, pulled up, um, spoke to a, a couple of coppers, found out what the score was, ready to go live to air. <coughs> and I said, uh, this is the situation here. And police fear there could be another device in the uh, within the church and may explode at any time. I've just sent my wife down to investigate. <laughs> <laughs> the, the boss of the CIB at the time, Gordon Beaumont, was driving back driving back out west when he heard this. He, he reckoned he nearly, nearly ran off the road. But anyway, that was the sort of thing. But I guess that's the, the life of a particularly an old school journo, isn't it? When people are, are running away from something, you're running towards it. <laughs> that's exactly right, yeah. yeah. And um, that... That, uh, the other bizarre part about that was that uh, it was a church b- bombing mm. and you're getting voxies from uh, bombing victims. Yeah. And some of them had, women had debris in there and they, would, they were just being so nice and so polite. It was uh, really yeah. something to say about the, the Christian faith. You know. Fast forwarding to, to 2021, you finish up at, at Sky News Um is that it? Retirement now? <laughs> or, uh, or are you still uh, hoping to, to stay involved? I mean, well, a, a journo never really <laughs> retires, I guess. No, mate. I sat down to... Uh, I've written bio- biographical yeah. account. It's uh, working title is People You Meet Along the Way. Yeah. From Prime Ministers to Crooked Cops to uh, 
killers to anyway about three parts uh, re- ready to send it to a publisher on yep. uh, uh, next month um, that's taken up a lot of my time um, I still do radio mm-hmm. um, one spot Monday mornings 3AW Melbourne and 5AA Adelaide but that's just to keep the hand <laughs> yeah keep involved <laughs> yeah um, and Troy, you've got a job going. I'm here. I'm <laughs> hey, ready. You never know. <laughs> Just recently as well, you uh, received, of course, an OAM on um, mm. on the Queen's birthday, 2022. Uh, a great honour. Um, an unexpected one? Oh, mate, totally unexpected. Uh, absolutely totally unexpected. Once again, uh, I'm at home. I knew nothing about any, any of this. I'm at home. Coral said, oh, very serious. There's an email here, and I think you should read it. Yeah. So, open it up and... Crikey, a speeding fine or a red light <laughs> camera, or, and it was you've been nominated for this award. Don't tell anyone. Uh, fortnight later, uh, the award has been. Then it emerges that this conspiracy between Laura Jace from Sky News Australia, my daughter Peter Ellen from uh, uh, Emu Plains, and, <clears throat> and my wife Coral uh, had conspired to put this and send it in some three years ago. It's taken that long. I'm very, very, uh, what can I say? I am honoured, absolutely mm. honoured. And what has been amazing is the number of people uh, from my past who have emerged literally in the hundreds mm. that I just would not have expected to even remember me. No, it's been wonderful. And people do say, you know, you don't do it for, for these kind of recognitions, no. but it is a great recognition, isn't it, <laughs> of, a, of a long career, one that... Uh, has had so many twists and turns, but one that, um, that that was so informative to a lot of people during times when, as I said, be- before internet, before you, you yeah. know, you, you were the voice for people in, in those um, radio stations, TV networks, and newspapers. So it, it is a, an, a recognition of that mm. service. It is, mate. And uh, uh, you say the changes that have occurred, particularly in relation to police reporting, which mm. was, I'd say, now the backbone of my uh, career in uh, the electronic media. I used to drink with the coppers, dine mm. with the coppers, hang around with them, coffee every morning up at the homicide squad, things like that. You know, Th- these days that'd be considered very taboo. Oh, no, <laughs> and they I, actually, I'd bear some responsibility that because <laughs> in association with then Constable uh, Kevin Daly, we instituted the media section. <laughs> <laughs> which has evolved as the only place you get anything anywhere. Yeah. But, you know, did, did, back, in, back in the days in first and radio, I'd start work at four o'clock in the morning. I'd ring every police station uh, from Parramatta to Lithgow yeah. and then south to Cameltown and then north to Newcastle. Just every, uh, every morning, that was mm. what you did to get stories. Uh, and it worked. Did, did you find that difficult later in your career when you you are talking to young journos and you're like, well, we'll do it this way, and, yeah. and it's just it's not done that way anymore. That's, that's is, exactly is, that, is that a challenge? Right. Yeah, a big challenge. And the worst part about it is that the media section is the only place you'll go, and the, all the coppers out of the stations say, "Mate, phone media, phone mm. media." That's all you get. And that has become a big problem, not just in police, but pretty mm. much in any sector now. That the I guess the PR twist yep. on on almost every industry and story, and yeah. it's all about protecting the message and the brand. Um, and it, it it's really disappointing. I say this from I guess a modern, uh, more current journalist point of view, in that the public ever loses in all of that. Yep. You know, um, because they don't get the true story. You look at statements that come through. You might send ten questions, you get a statement back. You don't mm. get ten answers. It's a it's a challenging time, and the industry is in such a position where it the resources aren't there to, to question it and to bring it into line. Yeah. I mean, uh, and sometimes, I'll tell you the story about Jimmy Council on the Kylie Corbett murder, uh, where he dropped it to me, you know, because he was so disgusted. Another another case was where a copper said to me, he was on the uh, sexual assault uh, squad, and he said, I can't work. He said, I've got 140 cases and there's me. Hmm. And I mentioned that fact on air. Next thing... <laughs> Peter Anderson, who was then the police minister, uh, our own uh, member for Penrith in those yep. days, Peter Anderson got up and roundly abused me in Parliament. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, anyway, uh, that was the sort of thing that happened. With regard to the OAM and with regard to 
my insult to Coral when we first met. Coral says, you know it really means old Australian male, don't you? <laughs> well, yes. Well, either way, you've got you've got the tag now and you can, you can live yeah. uh, happily with that one. A um, couple of last questions. You, you're living in the, the Penrith area. Um, what, what do you love about Penrith and, and still living here? And you mentioned your daughter's here as well, so fa- family's still in the area? Mate, we've got 11 grandkids and two and a half great-grandkids all within a radius of 20 to 25 minutes of mm. driving time. We ain't going anywhere. <laughs> and over the years, there's been always been the suggestion that we might move somewhere and sell up a uh, house at Colloden, a very modest home at Colloden. Um, I can see no reason to. Penrith at, at the moment is just a boom town mm. and will be into the future uh, with the airport going in and the airtropolis and what have you. Penrith's been a large part of my m- Life and once again, you know, in back in the day, covering Penrith Council at night time was great fun. Mm. The mayor would open the cupboard afterwards, and we all have a few drinks together. <laughs> and when when people got a bit nasty, our stories written about them. I remember one local government uh, member said, "Star District Star, that's rats spelt backwards, isn't it?" <laughs> Uh, we all we all deal with uh, with these things. There's no doubt about that. All right, last question, and it is one that stumps people, but uh, hopefully you've got a good answer for it. How would Terry Galloway like to be remembered in Penrith? As a journo, as a journo, an editor, someone who loved the industry, loved the job. I I said this before. Never once have I got out of bed in the morning, got dressed, and thought, "Oh, gee, I don't want to go to work." Yeah, not once in 62 years now. I love it and always will. It's a great way to be. Well, Terry, thank you very much for uh, for joining us. We appreciate it. It's an incredible story and uh, one with a couple of chapters still to play out, I reckon. And I hope you enjoyed our chat. On the Record is produced by The Western Weekender. To hear future episodes, search Western Weekender wherever you listen to podcasts and make sure you hit subscribe. Check out westernweekender.com.au and we'll see you next time.